<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up by Toki, a podcast dedicated to looking at issues that usually get swept under the rug. I'm your host, Carlos Demons Tolstoy. This week, we examine a topic that impacts everyone, addiction. The World Health Organization has been urging countries around the world to beef up alcohol treatment options, to prevent misuse in the first place, provide more supports for patients and their families. In some countries, more than 20% of the children and young people abuse alcohol. About 15 million people around the world suffer from a dependence on opioids, but only 10% get the treatment they need. Addiction is one of the most devastating problems people face across the globe. Now we head into the urban world to discuss a new trend, harm reduction. It's the idea that people don't have to be perfect before getting help. More and more doctors and support workers are meeting patients halfway helping addicts stay safe and make progress through needle exchange programs, new housing options, and innovative treatment programs. Reporter Drew Penner took a look at some of the efforts across North America to bring harm reduction forward. Let's listen as he learns about the innovative approaches communities are taking to empower vulnerable people. I was sitting in a cafe the other day telling someone about the Stand Up Speak Up podcast I was working on when a middle-aged man came over and introduced himself. He had excitement in his eyes and a message he wanted to get across. The man named Tim told me he struggled with addiction his whole life and has been involved with 12-step programs for decades. Sounded like a grueling process to me, but he said he's recently started using ayahuasca, a plant-based hallucinogen, in a supervised setting. And he told me he's never had more control over his life. It may be an illegal substance in North America, but Tim said it's been key to taking his life far beyond the white-knuckle ride of just staying sober. Then I went and did the um, ayahuasca. The development that I've had over the past two and a half, almost three years, is mind-blowing. I'd recently come across a Rolling Stone article about the same subject, and I've been doing my own research on the trend of harm reduction. Meeting Tim made me think of how we all struggle with negative mental and behavioral patterns and how we probably should do whatever we can to help those around us get a leg up in life. So we'll come back and speak with Tim later. Now traditionally, people with substance dependence problems are expected to get clean before getting help. But the reality is, it just doesn't work for a lot of people. In the end, drug users are pushed underground, and alcoholics may become more isolated. That's what harm reduction is all about. Lessening the harmful effects of dangerous behavior and providing support to people before they've totally kicked the habit. It's a relatively new idea, and still a controversial one in some areas. 
and it extends to the worlds of sex work, drug abuse, alcohol addiction, and beyond. Patients shouldn't be judged, the thought goes. After all, many have faced some sort of severe trauma or significant obstacle in their life. What they need is help. We decided to reach out to a medical professional in New York who has an interesting approach to helping problem drinkers stay sober by coaching them on how to drink responsibly. While he says he doesn't recommend this approach for alcoholics, his new weekly workshop is an effort to support people who need help with alcohol abuse without forcing them to go cold turkey. Dr. Arnold Washington has served as a substance abuse consultant to professional sports teams, foreign governments, the American Food and Drug Administration, and even subcommittees of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. So I was pretty glad to get the chance to hear what he thinks about harm reduction. When I was finishing my training, just finishing my internship, I took a part-time job in an addiction clinic in, um, in New York City, got involved in the uh, development and testing of new medications for treating addiction and then new therapeutic approaches. So I came into it through uh, academia, really. As is the case with many healthcare professionals, it was the patient's that had an impact on him right away. You know, now we're talking about 1975. Uh, back then, uh, addiction was considered uh, all but untreatable, and uh, addiction was synonymous with heroin addiction in the ghetto, and this, this clinic happened to be located in the Harlem section of New York City, in the, in the black and Hispanic ghetto of New York. And addiction was something uh, that was felt or thought to be endemic to underprivileged people and uneducated people, unemployed people. But Washington says he couldn't help but feel that his patients had potential. Even though they grew up under circumstances that didn't give them a good head start in life, and they had gone down the path of addiction that many of them could and did get better. The clinic was also involved in testing new medication for treating heroin. A long-acting form of methadone was one, and then a drug called naltrexone, which is an opiate blocker. Uh, I found that quite fascinating and did studies on the effectiveness of these medications and how combining the medication together with good therapy uh, produced the best results because the medication alone was not uh, the whole treatment, of course. Uh, therapy by itself for many of these patients wasn't um, the whole story either was not sufficiently adequate, but the combination of the two worked very well. In more recent years, the same medication was found almost by accident to um, help people reduce the likelihood of binge drinking. And, and my current patients will use it more for that. Washington's Drink Smartly program focuses on teaching patients how to control their drinking and be responsible with alcohol consumption. We not only teach people uh, behavioral strategies, you know, self-control strategies about how to better manage their drinking, bring it within safer limits, drink in ways that don't cause harm and consequences. And um, some of them take the naltrexone medication uh, that seems to enhance their ability to do just that. Having been involved with patients for such a long time, who have a history of alcohol and drug dependence, I wanted to find out 
about Washington's views on the current trend of harm reduction. So harm reduction is a relatively recent movement uh, here in the United States. It's been around Europe for a long time because the the Europeans um, had traditionally had a less kind of draconian prohibitionist mentality about drug use. You know, uh, Holland, for example, was accepting of recreational marijuana use many decades ago, and in England has long had uh, programs where uh, addicts can get clean needles, and uh, doctors at one point were able to prescribe heroin for them, so they'd have to buy it on the street. Uh, methadone is a harm reduction strategy. Uh, needle exchange is a harm reduction strategy. Uh, condom distribution to uh, young people to prevent unwanted pregnancies and the spread of STDs is a harm reduction strategy. Um, harm reduction is a, is a concept that uh, is, is based on the following idea, that if people are engaged in risky behaviors of any kind, whether it involves any of the things I just mentioned, or drinking too much, or drugging too much, that uh, any steps taken to reduce the likelihood of harm caused by those behaviors are steps taken in the right direction, even if it doesn't mean complete cessation of that risky behavior. It's an attempt to get away from the all-or-nothing mentality, he says. That's why he's trying to incorporate these principles into his Drink Smartly program. People make avenues available to those grappling with risky behaviors where they can take baby steps and make incremental changes toward hopefully a goal of either refraining completely from that risky behavior or so markedly reducing its frequency and intensity that the the risks are contained rather than say that the only way to recover from uh, a drinking problem is to stop drinking for life if you're not willing to do that then you're not motivated and you just have to keep hurting yourself until you get motivated for so long people have waited to hit rock bottom before they get better but that's even more dangerous he says because i think you can lower the barriers for people to get help and uh, make the kind of help that's available far more appealing by allowing people to do it in a stepwise fashion because, you know, at the front door, very few people um, are ready to sign on for some drastic change in their behavior that happens overnight. That doesn't even respect what we know about the process of changing human behavior. It's rarely an overnight, instantaneous quantum change. It's a gradual, progressive, incremental change is more typical of the way the process goes. Support for Stand Up Speak Up comes from Wearable Therapy by Toki. Your choices matter, and you can use fashion as a tool to make people think. Head over to wearable-therapy-toki, that's a two eyes.com, to check out a wide range of unique, ethically manufactured apparel designed to spark a conversation on the issues you care about most. Thanks for tuning in. I was fascinated by what I was learning about trends in New York, but I wanted to get a better sense of how harm reduction strategies are playing out across North America. So I got in touch with Randy Richmond, a reporter with the London Free Press in London, Ontario, just a couple hours outside of Toronto. 
and it definitely was interesting to hear what that city's doing to take the bull by the horns. We exchange a lot of needles here in London, like a high, high amount. Um, unfortunately, though, the, the HIV and Hep C rates are still, um, they, they went down, but they're, they're climbing up again. They're still trying to figure out why. But that's one example of how the harm reduction has worked here. Um, it's, it's been a very effective program. When it comes to sex workers, there's a, a new program, it's only a year old, that is trying to work on harm reduction as a way to help them and leave it up to them if they want to leave the business or not. But and it starts off with um, housing, getting housing before you worry about anything else. So you get a house, give a sex worker who wants one a house or home apartment first and then surround her with all the supports to help her with her addictions and everything else rather than the old method of make them get clean kick their addiction and then give them a place to live um, and it's been pretty effective about 90 percent of the 180 street level sex workers are injection drug users the, the harm reduction here is like let's not make them quit the trade or quit addiction and help them is give them a house give them some stability and help them along the way after a year, 26 of these women have been given a home. And so that's basically 26 women who are no longer worried about where they're going to spend the night couch surfing or, or selling sex for housing for that particular night. And of course, the accomplishments of those women are, are small compared to our you know, accomplishments that we consider accomplishments. But for some, it's just uh, having a place to stay. It's feeling safe. It's having a cup of coffee in the morning, not on the street but, you know, in their home. In a lot of ways, London is quite the conservative town, and opinions still split on this sex worker program. But the fact that proponents of the idea have come so far says a lot about the currency of harm reduction these days. Somehow, this, in this network that is working on harm reduction housing, first model, is quite powerful, though. They've managed to maneuver around all the politics because there's 25 agencies or programs in London, signed on to the, uh, it's called the Street Level Woman at Risk Program. Now, the city's needle exchange program has been going on for quite some time. In 2014, I think our latest stats say where they distributed more than 2.5 million needles in London. I mean, it was the second largest in Canada after Vancouver, according to our health officials. So they do that, they've been, and that, and that really helped bring down the HIV Hep C rates but since then it's been rising a lot of people think the unique drug culture in london could be to blame london is a bit different in that we had a huge opioid crisis uh and identified it um sort of long before everybody else did after the oxycontin was taken off the market crystal meth swept into the vacuum in a huge way and and it took over the drug culture here. And of course, when you're on opioids, your reaction to taking opioids is much different in the sense that you are, you know, whatever, sleepy, it's narcotic, relaxed. Whereas crystal meth, as you probably know, makes you hyper and, and also a lot less rational or a lot less uh, worried about consequences. And the health officials are only speculating, but they're thinking that this influx of crystal meth, which 
been huge here and shown itself in many, many ways is making people less careful and that could be one reason why HIV and hep C rates are are on the rise again or or higher than they are in other compared to other municipalities so now after facing after you know battling an opioid crisis now they got this crystal meth crisis on their hands and they're trying to battle that uh, and they're and they're trying to have a community-wide drug strategy because by the time they figure out what to do with crystal meth, opioids could be back here. So you have to have a strategy that all around us, if fentanyl and opioids are, are, are coming in and taking things over, but we're, and you know, it's happening here a bit. We're getting some fentanyl, some opioids, but crystal meth is still so cheap here and it gives you such a different kind of uh, reaction. Similar to Washington's Drink Smartly program, London's also trying to get a managed alcohol treatment option in place, but they're having trouble coming up with the funding. There's an element of the street culture here where who drink non-beverage alcohol, so Listerine, mouthwash, things like that. And, and they are, as well as other people, not only are they a danger to themselves, but they are a cost on the healthcare system. And these people are the lowest of the low ranks on the street. In other words, they are victimized by other homeless people, um, often older gentlemen who've had lots of years of drinking. So their health concerns and their visits to emergency rooms and their contact with police and time in jail is huge, um, which of course is very costly, both financially and you know, personally for the people involved. So what the city wants to do and what's happening in Ottawa is Ottawa already is a managed alcohol program where you house individuals who meet these criteria and you basically serve them safe alcohol and you serve them safe alcohol all day in measured amounts. Um, they're not you know, getting what we would consider blasted or anything, but a, a lot. And the original idea was when they first talked about was let them die in dignity. But now, as the years have gone by and there's been more research done in Ottawa, it's, you know, a lot of them aren't dying. You know, they're, they're actually living well and, and, and making changes. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really effective, sounding, kind of low-key way of helping people. Um, it's just, everything's up in the air in London because of these all these different drug strategies going on. So in some ways, nothing's happening because of all these competing strategies. The continued need for harm reduction really hit home for Richmond when a local woman named Shelley DeRoche went missing. She fell into the world of crystal meth and heavier into addiction. And, you know, she's been missing for more than a year now. And people have seen her at crack houses you know, every other kind of drug house as well, but had fallen hard into addiction. But you compare that to a woman I talked to at length, who was a, a former sex worker, and I talked to her, covered, kind of followed her progress for several years as she battled in and out of uh, addiction and, and went back and forth in the sex trade. The whole time she was battling, and it took three to four years, she had four or five uh, social service people around her who were basically uh, supporting her intensely, um, making sure that when she used, she had clean equipment. And she's made it. She's out of sex work. She's taking social work at college. She's on the advisory committee for the street level uh, woman at risk program because she she had the kind of help that these other women are getting now. So that's kind of like two examples of, peop- of people that you know have, have received help and have not. Now London is facing some giant harm reduction challenges, but Nowhere is more of a hotbed for this kind of activity than Vancouver, 
which has become a little bit like a war zone with people dying left, right, and center now that we're in the midst of a fentanyl epidemic. I spoke with a woman we're going to call Lucy. She's a social support worker in Vancouver on the downtown east side, which is notorious for drug activity and filled with all sorts of vulnerable people. We're not going to use her real name to protect the confidentiality of the people she works with. We reached her on the most stressful day of the month, Welfare Wednesday. It's the day when government agencies pay out benefit checks. And traditionally, people will get drunk, have a good time, or engage in a variety of substances. These days, so many people have been overdosing on this final Wednesday of the month. It's added a somber feel to what is typically a more joyous occasion. And a couple times during our conversation, I could hear sirens in the background. Lucy's own journey mirrors what's going on in the broader culture. Take a listen. I started in the downtown east side uh, with a, like a church ministry when I was a teenager and stuff like that. Um, and when I into my early 20s, I was pretty black and white about, you know, like drug use is bad, um, abstinence is good, alcohol is bad, smoking is bad. Like it was pretty, I was very black and white in my approach to support for a long time. And I was pretty exclusively working with people who were abstinent or trying to get abstinent probably in for the first like half decade that I was working in the downtown east side. Um, but I was tired of feeling like I was isolating the majority of the people here and cutting them off and that I was making expectations for people and setting them up for failure. I felt like people stopped wanting to talk to me or wanting to reach out to me because they felt like they had failed me. I also experienced like a harm reduction counseling that I went through in my life and that was so dramatically helpful to the releasing of shame in my own like stuff I was going through that like I realized praising people for coping, praising people for getting through their lives with whatever trauma they're carrying at whatever place they are in their lives, that's actually a really valuable way to, to honor the humanity of another person. Meeting people where they are, it was a complete paradigm shift for Lucy. But she's found it works. The things that you use to cope, which other people have condemned or made you feel ashamed for or isolated you for, those are actually incredibly intelligent ways for you to cope with what you have gone through. Where you want to be, the fact that you're using but you're alive means that using has probably kept you alive. And so I will praise you and encourage you and support you in the continuing of using, but I will always try to reduce the amount of harm that you may do to yourself. It's a simple principle, and it plays out in specifics. Giving clean materials, staying with you so you're not using alone, keeping you close to other people who are also using, making sure that you're not isolating. Certain aspects of Vancouver were pretty terrifying to Lucy when she first arrived. And I also had a lot of disappointment, I think, in myself for feeling fear. Uh, I think as a kid, I was like very ideologically driven. When I came down to the downtown east side, I, I felt afraid. Uh, it was so different from anything I'd experienced. I wanted to connect with others and I wanted to be a part of, of the neighborhood that I was living in. But I, yeah, I think my own shame that I felt afraid was something that I had, got, had to work on as a kid for a long time. At the end of the day, when I was, I kind of figured out that everybody has something in common. So 
Harm reduction really hit the mainstream in Canada when Vancouver's injection site called Insight was launched. So Insight started as Vancouver's premier safe injection site. It's currently, I think, our only legal safe injection site. Um, and it's... Yeah, that's right. Those are sirens in the background. It's presently run by Vancouver Coastal Health. There are nurses on site. Everyone who goes has a file at Insight. They check in there regularly so that everybody knows that they're alive and that they're doing well. There's outreach workers who are hooked up with BCH who are available. And then Insight also has um, OnSite, which is a uh, detox and pretox program that people who regular Insight have the option of uh, getting into. Lucy's come to see some of the flaws in abstinence-based methods. And I don't think that this is intentional, uh, but a lot of the culture of abstinence-based support, in my experience, has been pretty infantilizing of people's decisions. A lot of monitoring them, a lot of asking them questions and feeling that you have the right to know the answer because you have a degree of power over them or um, you're, you're trying to do well for them, but at the end of the day, everyone's an adult and everyone's making their own decisions. And it, addiction does put you in a space where your, your scope of choice feels very narrowed, and, but I don't want to judge people for making those choices in a way that I occasionally felt was happening in more uh, abstinence-based programs. Yep, another siren in the background. I, I started going to Al-Anon and stuff like that just to help me cope a little bit when I was younger with the devastation of, like, I've seen this woman, uh, like, drinking and pregnant in, like, eight separate pregnancies over the course of the last couple years, just, like, stuff that I, and, and she's not getting better. And so, like, the frustration of that, I started going to Al-Anon and reaching out to other support workers and started to realize that recovery isn't something that can be monitored or babysat. And right now, support workers are up for anything that works. After all, 914 people died of overdoses last year in the province of British Columbia. It's an 80% increase over the previous year. So in the last two, three years, heroin and dope and the narcotics in the area, including street drugs that are being sold, like morphine, um, have all been cut with fentanyl and other opiates that have incredibly magnified the chances of death for people who are who rely on those substances. And I've seen things that are pretty unbelievable, like people who have been using responsibly for 30 years, have never overdosed, know exactly how much they need to get through the day, have been buying from the same supplier all of that time, people that they trust and are in relationships with, uh, overdosing now seven times in the last two years, still doing all of these measures to take care of themselves and still trying to safely buy from the same people. Um, but what we're seeing more and more, what Insight's reporting, because you can test your drugs at Insight, is that at this point, if you're trying to buy heroin in this city, there's basically no heroin left. There's just fentanyl cut with, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But any sort of narcotics, any sort of down that people were relying on in a very safe way for a very long time are now complete risks. Even things like I've seen two people use the same dope and one goes down and the other one doesn't. 
So fentanyl is having like very different responses to people's physiology that's very unpredictable. Um, People I know have said like, I used the same down yesterday and then they overdosed on the same amount the next day. So we still don't really understand from where I am how this is affecting people, but we have the evidence around us is this is not the same drug that people were using five years ago. And in the last, like me being down here for 10 years, I feel like the scope of the neighborhood has completely changed. My work as a support worker feels entirely like a different position now because I'm just trying to like keep people alive and keep people safe instead of kind of planning with them, you know, what's your day going to look like today? Or like, like, oh, you have court coming up. Like, do you want to talk about it and prepare for it? We're not doing that anymore. Now it's almost entirely survival-based existence for people who, I mean, didn't need to worry about survival because they knew how to take care of themselves. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes organizations and groups that we're passionate about and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. Do you feel that in a case that's as drastic as this with what's going on in Vancouver and, of course, on Vancouver Island as well, um, do you feel that this is a situation where you go, this is proof why we need harm reduction in uh, you know to grow and to become more the norm or do you see it as like well you know do, do you ever hear the argument that people say well you know in the case like fentanyl just even the tiniest bit can be too much and if we're allowing these people to you know continue on and not really pushing for them to get off these drugs as quickly as possible um that you know we may have blood on our hands. Like I've, I've heard that criticism before. I don't know if that's a reality that you've heard, um, but I'm just wondering what you take away from what you see in the social service organizations there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because, you know, most of us who are on the front line 
are dealing with thing with the situation so day by day. Um, what we want is to people to see is that harm reduction is what what is saving people now. So we've seen about a thousand deaths in the last two years, which is unprecedented for our neighborhood. Um, but we don't even know how many overdoses there are because harm reduction has been so effective in making sure people aren't alone when they're using, that use, that people who, drug users have naloxone and are, are reviving their friends. Um, people have been trained to, to take care of each other down here. And so the crisis is bad, but I really think that harm reduction has cushioned a lot of that death. A lot of the people down here have saved more lives than probably the average person will in the course of their lifetime. And they did that because they were given the opportunity and the training and they took responsibility for their own lives and the lives of their friend because they had harm reduction uh, materials and resources available to them. Um, I've heard a lot of like, well, you know, uh, you shouldn't be using heroin in the first place. <laughs> and um, I mean, I think the logic of that is just a little bit flawed in terms of like all humans have vices, like all humans are trying to cope which is like, like living in the world, <laughs> and like, and so some people like overcharge their credit cards, and some people use heroin, and I mean, nobody deserves to die at the end of the day for whatever they're using to cope. Was there ever a time that you can think of when the true impact of this tragedy really hit home for you? Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I lost, um, an incredibly close friend this last year, and, um, this was a woman who, uh, to be honest, I, I really believe she was indestructible. Like, she was the strongest woman I'd ever met, uh, she was like small in stature, but enormous in spirit um, and enormous in heart. Uh, she was the type of person who could like get in a fist fight with her neighbor on one day and then the next day hear that her hear that that same person has suffered a loss and anonymously leave them gifts. Um, she was a woman of pride and she was eloquent and she was intelligent. She saw the problems with the system. Um, Native woman who believed in culture and restoring uh, Native women in, the, in our community. Um, and I'd watched her survive. I've, I'd watched her survive so much physical ailment. Uh, I'd watched her go to the hospital and, like, walk out with, like, a pick line still in her heart <laughs> because she just, like, didn't want to be there anymore and she knew she could survive it. And I'd watched her go through so much that I guess on, on some level, I really did believe she was indestructible. Um, and her death came as such a shock to me. And I think everybody else in the community that knew her, that 
this thing that we're dealing with doesn't care how good you are. I feel a little bit like I'm like living during the time of like the bubonic plague, you know, like it doesn't discriminate how careful you are and it doesn't discriminate how loved you are and it doesn't discriminate how much you have survived and how hard you've worked to be alive. And it doesn't care how strong you are. It's still strong enough to take you out. And so this incredible person, you know, like uses once alone because she has this illusion of safety because she hasn't died yet, as we all take risks because we have the illusion of safety. And just the next day, she's gone. And it's, it's still shocking and it's still overwhelming that she's gone. And I think that the neighborhood is still feeling her loss. She had been someone that I've worked with um, through my agency at different times. I knew her before I started working with my present agency, uh, just from the neighborhood because she's a very kind of magnetic personality. Her name was Marnie and she was Dene First Nations from up north. And yeah, her culture and her family were incredibly important to her. And I learned an incredible amount from her. It's dark days in Vancouver's downtown east side for sure. And harm reduction is playing a huge role in lessening the blows. But not everyone who has embraced these ideas is heading from full-on addiction to the light. That brings us back to Tim, the guy from the coffee shop who's been using an illegal South American hallucinogen to deal with past issues. Tim was actually sober for 19 and a half years before he started partaking in our ayahuasca ceremonies. He says it's a method of harm reduction that has allowed him to move further forward in his life than he ever expected. I grew up in a very broken place. My mother died when I was eight, and just before my ninth birthday, and my stepfather was a completely broken person. And then I went into foster care, and then I hit puberty. And once I hit puberty, I got extremely angry. And I just pushed everybody away with my anger. And I ended up in a series of other foster homes. And then from there, I ended up going through the juvenile uh, correctionals um, system. And then a year later, I ended up in adult prison at 17 years old before the Young Offenders Act came in in 1984. I was literally in Wilkinson Road when there was a prison riot. Seven guys escaped in 1984 when I was there in the kitchen we were watching it on TV. We were hearing it for about a day and a half. And at parole, they said, come back to high school, or if you get kicked out, you're coming back to jail, and you have to do the 10 months. So I ended up getting on the honor roll in high school. Because when I was in grade, when I was went to juvie in grade 11, in five months, I was in juvie. And within that five months, in a six-week period, I got my grade 12, my VAF for grade 12, which is a... Uh, basic level of grade 12. So when I went back the next year, or the, later on that year, I only had to take one course to graduate. And because I had a whole bunch of time, I ended up getting in trouble with my friends. And all it was was just, we stole a bunch of stuff from this guy's house, and we were all drinking and partying, and my buddy says, hey, come on! So we all just followed him, peer pressure stuff. And because I was the foster kid, and because I didn't previously been in trouble, where I'd been caught stealing harsh barriers and stuff like that, and I'd been caught... Um, trying to uh, procure liquor as an underage person on the side of the liquor store. Those were the two charges that I've been caught with previous to that. I ended up getting the um, uh, an incarceration sentence 
when I was the first time in the juvenile institution. And so from there, I ended up getting my grade 12. And then when I went back to um, high school, because I'd gotten into trouble and I was the foster boy and I'd been previously in trouble, I got the book thrown at me. And I went to some inside um, the jail AA meetings. And the only reason people do that is because they want to get out of jail. They want their get out of jail free card. Now, I ended up getting a temporary absence just before my parole came up. And I ended up going to one outside AA meeting, which was in Nanaimo. Remember, I'm at a minimum medium security institution by this time. And when I went to this meeting, I thought, oh, my God, you poor old people. You're so hard done by. And I thought that alcoholics were just kind of like crying in their coffee because all the fun was over and they just went to these meetings to commiserate with each other. Little did I know that, um, and and the other thought I had about alcoholics was that they were just, they didn't cut the mustard. They didn't have enough um, um, gumption to work through their problems. Now, fast forward, I'm 27 years old. I'm back to sniffing glue. I'm living on a rolled up carpet with a black and white TV. And six months prior to that, I was selling new cars in Ontario and I was making a lot of money at that time. But because I didn't know how to feel good, I didn't know how to handle um, a good sense of self-esteem, I constantly sabotaged myself repeatedly through life. And that sabotage ended up me coming back to Port Alberni, just walking away from everything and coming back to Port Alberni. And um, uh, from 25 to 27, it was a real far downhill struggle and ended up in the soup kitchen, looking at my feet, um, uh, permanent welfare. Um, and so at 27, I got into, I came to um, one program and because I was going through an anger management, court mandated anger management. And um, because I got caught through threatening people, it was yelling in the streets in a, a semi-psychosis state. And so rather than put me through the court system, they put me through the anger management and a conditional sentence. And so because of that, I ended up meeting a part-time recovery, 12-step recovery member who was the counsel, one of the counselors of the anger management. And he told me, why don't you go just to meet friends? Because I was really lonely. And at 14 years old, when remember puberty hit when I was 14 and all hell broke loose, I ended up hanging myself by a tree out camping with my foster family. And I seen the pain and the level of hurt that these people I put them through because I had a rope mark around my neck for a month. It was very drastic what had happened to me. I ended up in the hospital for quite some time because of it. And so I thought to myself at that time, I'm never going to consider, even consider killing myself because I don't want to hurt the people around me. So fast forward, I'm 27. I'm walking down the street with my little grandma hash and I'm saying to myself, I have to do this. I have to kill myself. This doesn't work me anymore. This is not taking the pain away. And so that was the TSM turning point for me emotionally. And then I go and see this counselor and he says, you know, in, in the meantime, I was seeing him on a regular basis once a week or court mandated once a week or so. And he tells me to come, you know, come to the 12-step recovery process. And so I did because I was terribly lonely, not because of any other reason, but because I was lonely. And right from day one, I felt like I was part of, and I slowly eased into it. And then after I did the step five, which is to do their spirit moral inventory of yourself and then you tell somebody else about it. And what I did was I did the deep dark secrets part because all the rest of the shit I could talk about it, and I always did anyway. And so once I did the deep dark secrets part of step five, I really dove in and that was about eight months into the process. And after the step five, I was going to two meetings a day and I did that for 19 years. 
been the process of gathering a herd around you is the healing process. When you've got people that accept you, no matter what, and I've got a half dozen or so that know everything about me, all my deep, dark secrets, because I've told them over time, because I've gotten into all these different jackpots over time while I'm sober. I ended up getting quite successful in business. And because of that, it went to my head, and I just didn't keep my nose to the grindstone when it came to keeping moving forward. So I ended up at about 15 years sober, losing everything. And it was the best thing that happened to me because it forced me to look at myself at 16 years sober, sorry. It forced me because at 15, it happened to me that my sponsor in the program ended up jacking me for 15 grand and leaving the province. It's all symptoms of the same thing. Low self-esteem, um, thinking that nobody could possibly understand me. And if I told them, they'd tell me to F off and call me a freak because I was broken or I felt broken. Completely, completely, utterly broken. Okay? But I really didn't want to go back to a um, lifestyle that included addiction. And so, um, fast forward about four years or five years, and I meet Gabor, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's doing a talk in Porto Bernie, and it's a talk on how uh, to identify. Um, patterns of self-destructive behaviors in children and how to, um, to not let that stuff happen in the first place. So while he's doing an intermission, he uh, is signing books. And while that's happening, I end up going and talking to him while there's nobody around. And what I did was I just basically did my spiel about, I sold myself. I said, this is me, this is my story, and I really need to get on the train of ayahuasca. He ended up putting me on a mailing list that involved some people. And so I went, it probably took me about a year and a half to go. And I ended up, um, from the very first time, I didn't understand what was going on, but I did have that feeling of, ah, why have I not been doing hallucinogens for 20 years? Because as a teenager and as a young adult, I was the guy that all my friends would come and get, that when they were ready to go on an LSD trip, They'd come and get me because I would keep them in line. I would keep them from feeling like they can jump out of the window and fly. I would keep them into like a more spiritual aspect rather than like sometimes every once in a while, one of them would go into like a really heavy duty, hard, negative, emotional time for 15 hours or so. And I was always able to keep them on track. And so my experience with hallucinogens as a young adult was probably upwards of a hundred times. So when I did it at 19, 20 years sober, I first thing that after like a half an hour or something, it starts to hit me. I thought, oh my God, why have I denied myself this feeling for 20 years? And then I went into this state where I was chanting in a different language, in an ancient different language. And it was a guttural thing. And then finally one of the helpers shook my foot and said, focus on your breathing. And it scared me because I didn't, I was not ever, ever in my life used to not being in control. And I was out of control the first time I did it. And then I went into like a five hour inventory of all the women in my life, including my mother who died it when I was eight, foster mothers, ex-wife, ex-girlfriends, and how I came up short on my end of the bargain in regards to 
the interactions that I had with them because of being screwed up as a child sexually. And so this inventory opened up my eyes and I went, holy crap, I am so unbelievably dense. And so this whole um, process of going into the ayahuasca has opened up parts of me that only deep hypnosis open up. And so I've got to witness some of the events that happened to me as a child from an adult perspective. And when you're a child and you go through traumatic events, you don't actually have the brain um, capacity. You don't have reason when you're seven years old. It doesn't start to develop when, before you're nine. And so stuff is happening when you're a kid and you don't understand it because these people are acting insane. They're acting like they're supposed to love you, but they're acting completely fucking, excuse my language, completely insane. And so under the auspices of ayahuasca, I got to understand from an emotional level, not just an intellectual level, because I've done the intellectual um, work with the 15,000 AA meetings and the thousands of hours of counseling throughout my life. But I'd never done the emotional work, the actual connection with my emotions. And the ayahuasca did that for me and continues to do that for me. Whether we're talking about finding sex workers a place to live, facing off against the opioid crisis monster, controlling alcohol abuse, or solving deep-seated issues through controversial therapy, we're surrounded by a surge of harm reduction efforts. You don't have to be on the front lines of Skid Row to be part of it. You can be a support to someone in your life who needs help, and try reserving judgment until a later date the next time you extend a helping hand. When you have the chance, make sure to stand up and speak up. Thanks to everyone who participated in this episode. We really appreciate you sharing your stories. Take a second to leave a comment for a chance to win a shirt from Toki. And tune in next week to find out if you won. Our winner this week? Anderson22. Glad you're enjoying the podcast. This week, for some special bonus content, we bring you quick tips for reducing harm. Buy less, so you use less. Buying large amounts of a drug may be cheaper, but you could end up using more than you want to simply because it's there. Set a time limit before you start. If you choose, say, to stop drinking at 10 p.m., watch the time, remind yourself of your plan, and stick to it. Have some juice ready. Eat a meal before you start. And avoid snacking on salty foods, especially if you're drinking. You may drink more out of thirst. Lower your dosage and frequency. In other words, drink, smoke, or inject in smaller amounts and less often than you do now. When it comes to alcohol, this could mean choosing light beer and other low-alcohol drinks, or alternating drinks with water or pop. Choose the least harmful method of use. Injecting a drug carries more risk than smoking, snorting, or swallowing. If you do inject drugs, avoid the neck area. When it comes to cannabis, using a vaporizer or smoking a joint with a rolled up cardboard filter is safer than using a bong and some pipes. Plan out some drug-free days. The fewer days in a row you use a drug, the better. If you use the drug every day, Try cutting back your use to every other day. And try not using it at all for two or three days. Make sure you have in mind other ways to spend your time and energy 
so you don't end up sitting around thinking about how you miss getting buzzed. Use at your own speed and don't feel pressured by others to pick up the pace. Find someone caring and understanding to talk to when you're struggling to stick to your reduced use plan. Read self-help books that feature stories about people who have successfully cut down on or quit using a drug. Put condoms in your pocket before you start using a drug, even if you're not planning to have sex. You might change your mind. For more tips like this, go to heretohelp.bc.ca slash workbook slash you dash and dash substance dash use dash harm dash reduction dash strategies. Our song of the week comes from B Cleaver Beats. That's John Cleaver, who sent us a message saying, around the time this song, which is called Harm Reduction, was created roughly five years ago, I was on probation and had to attend these mandatory meetings, much like AA, but not AA. The term harm reduction was repeatedly mentioned because it refers to a type of public health policy that's meant for reducing harmful acts to oneself. Long story short, it was a tough time in my life that eventually got better from a new perspective on life. I feel the temptation sample throughout reflects an enlightened, uplifting mood that's truly felt only after enduring some personal strife. Thanks for letting us use the song. Check out B Cleaver Beats on SoundCloud.
Let your style speak for you with Wearable Therapy by Toki. Wearable Therapy by Toki is a clothing brand dedicated to raising awareness around social issues like addiction. We believe that starting the conversation is an important step for harm reduction, helping those in need, reducing the stigma, and preventing others from heading down the wrong path. See our Beyond Addiction clothing line at wearable-therapy-toki.com. That's wearable-therapy-toki.com. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.